with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to this episode of Phronesis. I am really excited for this conversation. I was just saying to my two guests that this is one of the more complex conversations that we've hosted on Phronesis. So an important, really important conversation and complex. And so I think if you are new to the topic of uh, Bill Torbert's action logics, if you are new to the topic of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or some call it Jedi, it may be it may be really, really important to go ahead and go to the show notes, click on a couple links, and get yourself up to speed with those two topics before jumping in. We talked before we started the conversation today. We're not going to go to the full deep end, and these two can. I've read their work. And you will have access to their work. Uh, we're not going to stay in the kiddie pool. We're going to try and stay in that part of the pool where our toes can still touch the ground, but we probably need the ladder to get out. <laughs> That's what we're shooting for today. Uh, today, I'm thankful to have two guests, and uh, both have written a couple articles that, again, you can access in the show notes. And we're going to really focus a little bit on those two topics. So I have Aftab Erfan. She, her, is a scholar practitioner currently serving as 
the city of Vancouver's first chief equity officer, where she leads internal transformation for a public organization of nearly 10,000 employees. Originally from Iran, she moved to Canada as a teenager. Her formal education is in environmental sciences, fine arts, and urban planning. Aftab did much of her growing up with the youth environmental movement, where she learned that activism is an effective antidote to despair. In her late 20s, Aftab completed an action research-based PhD in community and regional planning at the University of British Columbia. I love UBC. I love Vancouver, where she subsequently taught for nearly a decade and completed a four-year stint as director of dialogue and conflict engagement for the university. She has worked as a consultant on four continents, but finds much more meaning in working locally. Next to her family, Aftab's primary engagement is with the large systemic issues of our times. She wonders how we can become useful leaders in times of societal struggle, transition, and collapse. Now, I also have Amiel Handelsman, and he is a seasoned executive coach with 20 plus years of experience helping leaders and teams navigate complexity. His clients have included college presidents, C-level business executives, and teams at every level. He is passionate about climate solutions and specializes in helping people deliver what they promise and build highly engaged workforces. Amiel is the author of four books, including Practice Greatness and the free eBooks Reimagining American Identity and How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist, and is a frequent guest on podcasts. He holds a BA in public policy studies from Duke University and an MBA from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Amiel lives with his wife and two children in beautiful Ann Arbor. You two are from very, very beautiful places. I love Ann Arbor and I love Vancouver. To the two of you, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Amiel, is there anything else that listeners need to know about you before we jump in? The main thing is that uh, I'm going to be listening for the first 45 minutes and then weighing in. And I'm very happy to be here, Scott, with you and Aftab, an honor to be with you. And Aftab, tell us what it's like in Vancouver today. I hope it's a sunny, beautiful day. It is a sunny, beautiful day. There is not a cloud in the sky. Oh. It's, it's actually hot, which we all almost never get. So yes, it, it's beautiful. And it's when you work for municipal government, you also know how chaotic it is. And, and, you know, everything is happening from dogs barking to fires maybe breaking out to homeless on the street. You know, it's complex, uh, beautiful and complex at the same time. Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for the two of you being here. And and as Amiel said, we are going to really start with the conversation because Aftab wrote an article and it's published in the Integral Review. And it's an important article that's really blending two pieces of literature in a very, very nice way. And the article is called The Many Faces of Jedi, A Developmental Exploration. So would you take us into maybe even just the origin of really combining these two topics? Because, I mean, I think it. I really, really enjoyed this. It really was a captivating read in so many ways, blending these two topics in a very, very cool way. Well, thank you. And and I'm so happy to be talking about it. I would say I have been in some ways on the margins of the adult development community for a very long time. Bill Torbert, who I think has been a, a guest on your show, um, has been a close friend and colleague of mine for a long time. And he developed this model of thinking through 
how adults develop during their, their adulthood. So, so we kind of take it for granted that as children, we grow and we learn new things and not just new, new things, but we kind of increase our complexity, if you will, of how we deal with the world. And it turns out that in our adulthood, we do the same. Bill and I, for a while, were, were interested in how do we take a concept like power and talk about how it grows how our conception of power grows as we grow. So the way that, you know, when you're a teenager and then you think about power is, is usually not the same way that you would think of it when you're 70 years old. And, and like, what is the progression of that? Um, and so we've done this exercise of looking at power and love and the concept of making mistakes and, and you know, the concept of inquiry. What does it look like at every stage of development or what, what Bill calls action logic? And then I was finding myself, I've been working in this area of um, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice for a long time. And the first Christmas of pandemic, the first pandemic Christmas, I had a lot of space, you know, there, there was no family around. And, and I was like, <laughs> I just had this like space to dig into what I was doing and, and think a little bit more deeply about it. And so I had this idea of, you know, what would it be like to apply the lens of development and of the action logic uh, to 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 the area where I do most of my work. So how does the concept, how does our understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice change as we grow and as we find ourselves in, in different stages of development? So that's kind of where it came from. I believe it was in your article where we have kind of the rings of the tree the mm -hmm. images of the rings of the tree. Was that in, in your article, yes, Aftab? Yeah. And it was a really nice way because it's almost though, as though for each of these developmental stages, it's as if there's a, a new ring to the tree. It's a more, it's a transformed organism, but it's more inclusive of even the smaller rings of the tree. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. as I understand it, we may as human beings, and that's what you're asserting in the article, experience these topics of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion very differently depending where we are on that developmental level, right? Yeah, that's exactly the concept of, of the article. And then to, to speak to the rings of the tree, the idea is you're not just growing out of who you have been. It's, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you start with the first action logic is opportunist, you know, knowing how to take advantage of the moment. As I grow up and learn to be, let's say, an expert or an achiever, I don't lose my ability to be an opportunist. I just don't don't do that only. You know, it's yes. kind of like the repertoire expands and you don't lose what you had before, but you have more to work with all the time, which also in my mind, it means that those who are at later stages of development in a way have more responsibility for mm. doing this work in a responsible way. And so that that's kind of what I'm I'm trying to explore uh, in the article as well. And what's interesting about this whole conversation is not only might some of the individuals who are engaged in conversations around Jedi might experience the conversation differently, but even I would imagine educators, coaches, practitioners who are delivering content who might be at different stages are also experiencing the content in a different way. Is that accurate? That's very true. And I think actually training or messaging about Jedi is the space where we could either make this conversation 
pretty limited and in a way immature, if you want to call it that, or we could nudge it towards the deeper end uh, and towards more more engagement with complexity, which by definition, this topic is complex. You know, there is yeah. no clear cut answers to how we should move towards justice or even if justice is a good thing or if, if, if it is a, a kind of universal value that we hold. So yes, I think even just how you think about what you're doing when you're delivering training is um, dictated in a way by where you're at developmentally. Jennifer Garvey Berger, it, it's interesting in, in her book, I think it was changing on the job. Now she's applying Keegan's developmental stages in, in, in that book, but it's interesting because she said, look, if I'm designing a learning experience, I'm going to design to these different stages and ensure that I'm hitting these different stages in the design of the curriculum, which I always thought was kind of a very, very interesting perspective in Northeast Ohio, where I'm located in the United States. I've engaged for probably five or six years where I'm partnered with another individual and, and the day is really around power, diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in Northeast Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it is so fascinating to look out at the audience and, and I wish there was a way to verbalize what I'm, put image to what I'm about to say, but you can just see people's minds at vastly different places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some people are like, huh, this is a thing. And other people are frustrated and tired and just, you know, let's move on from the conversation. And other people are just frustrated and tired because they've been having the conversation for so long and things aren't changing the way they want to. So it's this really interesting, I mean, I just, I love your framing that these minds are entering the space in a very, very different way and constructing meaning in a different way. In the pre-conversation, we talked about maybe focusing on three of mm -hmm. the action logics today. Maybe take listeners through the three that you'd like to focus on and how they intersect with concepts of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. In Torbert's model, there, there are eight different action logics. And it, it's basically the concept is very similar to Keegan's, but it, but but Bill does a little bit more nuancing of what happens, almost like at the in-between stages. So, so you come up with eight instead of four. I, I think where this conversation is most interesting with respect to Jedi is kind of the middle of the range. So the beginning of that range is like you go from opportunist to diplomat to expert, and then you arrive at a stage that is called achiever. And the achiever mindset essentially is like, I mean, I kind of think of it as the, the American dream. It's like the idea is you, you are here um, to achieve and you need to be able to draw on expertise. You need to draw on some level of diplomacy and being able to engage with people and looking for opportunities in order to be able to achieve. You're really in this mindset of how do we maximize the success of the initiative that we are involved with? Let's say that that is a company or government or whatever, or an NGO or whatever that is. I mean, some people would, would say this, this is like a the place where neoliberal thinking really finds a home. It's like, where's your merit and how do you grow that and how do you work through issues in order to maximize the bottom line, what, however you define that. That's the achievement. And I, and I would say most of our organizations basically are in a kind of like center of gravity of achiever. We have a lot of folk. I mean, that this is sort of like the purpose of business mm. is, to, is to make money by being very efficient and, and, and kind of like working through things with others and, and getting to results. That, that's fine. And then 
some of us grow to this other stage, the next stage in this model, which is called redefining. And the redefining, almost by definition, is about looking at the world and thinking, but that doesn't quite fit. Is really is the point of life really to make as much money and and grow old and buy cars and houses and you know like is that really the point? And so if you're at redefining achievement in the traditional sense, kind of becomes a little bit meaningless. You're really looking at what is what is life for? What is the point of what we are doing? And it's really a lot about reframing the purpose of thing, things and the way we do things and moving into new visions. I mean, there, there's such a kind of a huge creative potential with redefining because you're kind of like, it's not that, it's this other thing. You're, you're kind of creating quite a bit. There's a lot of innovation. I would say that in the Jedi space, diversity and inclusion, equity and justice, what we are looking at if you work in organizations, you will see it's like the people who are really irritated because they feel like they've had this conversation for a long time and they're not getting anywhere. They tend to be maybe disproportionately people of color, uh, women, LGBTQ folks, like people who've been on the margins of society in a way. They are saying, you know, the way that we've been running organizations, which is, you know, so so logical and it goes in this in this way and, and creates value for 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 shareholders, that's not serving me, you know, and in mm. fact, that is putting me in a marginalized position, even more so like almost every day that I come to work, my ways of being in the world are not valued within an achiever mindset. And so everything is being questioned from that redefining perspective and almost like nothing is right and, and yeah. everything needs to change and it needs to change now. And, and so part of where the redefining is, is also there's a lot of certainty about things. It's like there's a kind of a righteousness potentially about things. I mean, we see the answer. You know, these people don't see the answer. We see the answer. And why aren't we going there faster? It's a really, again, super transformative place to be, it's super creative, and also a lot of conflict happening, I think, really between redefining and achiever in organizations. If we look at just the next ring of the tree, the next stage is called transforming. The idea in this stage is that you become very comfortable with the notion of polarities, that there's, you know, there's this, but there's also that. And it's really about integration of things that seem seemingly opposite to each other. But if you want to really find a way through, you need to see the truth of both of them. Mm. There's less rigidity, that, both about you know, what's the point of business, but also about what's the solution <laughs> to, to solve what we are dealing with. In a way, there's a lot more flexibility here within the transforming action logic and some of the clear-cutted ways of thinking that are characteristics of redefining begin to fall away. So so there's just much more nuance. That's actually where we want to move people. (laughs) You know, if we are really actually serious about achieving justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, it is a transformation project and we need to do it from a transforming stance. We actually can't do it within an achieving stance, really, or within a redefining stance. And so a lot of, you know, the the kind of thing that I find myself doing in my role is like appreciating what the achiever and the redefining are bringing to the table and trying to work through them and in a way work past them and, and integrate them into something that we could be potentially working with. So I think that's a little bit abstract, but I'm hoping it's making some sense. 
So what comes to mind as I'm listening to you speak, when I look at the civil rights movement in, in the United States in the 1960s, and you have some of the key characters, Fred Shuttlesworth, or Malcolm X, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Abernathy, it, it's almost as though their minds are at different places, mm-hmm. and how they're communicating some of the challenges are at very, very different places. Does mm-hmm. that does that resonate or connect with... How you mean they're they're different from each other or from where society is or what, what do you mean different? I think different from each other. Yes, they're how they communicated, mm-hmm. but also uh, obviously different from society, right? Yes, I mean, yeah. Um, how they're communicating can resonate or distance uh, your average person in power, the the white male in that instance. Yeah, it's it's at least that's how I'm thinking of it. How would you yes. react to that? Would you agree? Yeah. There are some articulations of the goal there that are more, in some ways, more rigid, more clear, but more rigid, right? And then there's there there's some that are just such. There's so much more give and take and negotiation and uh, and nuancing, and then yeah, we could fix that problem, but we're going to break this other thing, you know, like and is that going to work? <laughs> yes. So I do think you can see in some of the leaders, yeah, real differences in where they stand as well. And in that movement, you probably need, you You pr- probably all are serving in some way for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But there, there's just differences in that approach. There's differences in, you know, Fred Shuttlesworth. It was, it was very, I mean, it was direct and it was head on. And this is what I'm seeing and taking on Bull Connor in, in Birmingham. And there was just an intensity there that was different than uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who was just yeah. as passionate but in in many ways communicated differently and entered the space differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk a little bit more about these three spaces as they relate to Jedi, or if you'd like, maybe we focus in on that transforming space. If that's, is that, is that how I'm understanding it correctly? That that transforming space is really that linchpin in your mind, getting people to that complexity of mind or that way of thinking that will help identify new solutions. So I think, I mean, the biggest thing that I see is that we are in a moment when the energy that redefining is bringing, which could be very, very helpful in its directness and clarity and you know new ways of seeing. I see that it's also very likely to become kind of like the bad child or the, the problem in this space, both from an achiever stance and from a transforming stance, because it's annoying. It's annoying to have people who think they know exactly what should happen and it's never good enough for them. It's never, never happening fast enough for them. I think part of part of where I think the potential is for beginning to do some good work is First of all, appreciating redefining, you know, and and I'll be the first one to say sometimes it's very hard. <laughs> I have mm. a lot of conversations with myself about this, and especially for those of us who've maybe been through that stage. And so it might look differently for those of us, but there's often that stage where you're like, you, you everything is wrong with the world, and you know why, <laughs> and mm. and you have a certainty about that. If we saw it in that way, it's like we can have patience and compassion for that. And then the question is, how do we help these folks grow? And how do we help the discourse grow beyond a place that is rigid in in that way? I think that's the first point. It's like appreciating 
where redefining is coming from and the energy and having patience for it. And then from a transforming um, stance, it's like we cannot settle for the simplicity in a way of what redefining is asking us to do, because it is the kind of like you might fix one problem, you might fix one form of inequity, but you're going to create new forms of inequity, right? And often without even doing the cost-benefit analysis or the the trade-offs, you know, so, so from a transforming perspective, there's a little bit more cautious, I think, about how we go about creating change, but there is a real grappling with, okay, what are the consequences and what would happen if, and and I think, a mistake that we often make is not bringing enough people into the complexity. So in my organization, there are folks who are really kind of, you know, we think of them as activists, but it's really folks who are taking redefining all the way there. Again, we are less likely to bring them into solution making because they are difficult to work with because of the kind of uh, a certainty energy that they're bringing. But I, but I think that's a mistake. I think if the way we get out of this is actually almost like forcing, uh, redefining to engage with complexity that we can see if you're sitting somewhere else in the system. And I don't think it's opposed to the ethics of redefining. I mean, there, there are so many of folks that I'm I'm talking about are thinking about inclusion, the, the, the value of the different voices, but they're kind of also rigid in how they think about that. But, but I think we can use that opening to say, okay, what about the voices of white men in this conversation? Or the, in my case, it's like the, the heritage activists in the community who like really want to preserve these old buildings or something, you know, and, and that, that often is in conflict with, or, you know, they want the, the statues of the founders of the city preserved. It's in conflict with what the social justice movement is bringing, but it is not irrelevant. And if we could get the social justice movement to think about those values next to theirs, maybe we get to a place that is a little bit more um, sustainable in terms of the changes we are trying to make. That's a really interesting word there, sustainable, right? Would you say more about that, sustainability? It's something that can be, it's it's just like a little bit more durable because we, we could rip down the statue in front of City Hall and then there will be something else replacing it. You know, there's no stability in using force or the certainty of a certain position to break things down you know that that's it might feel like a move towards justice but it is unstable and it's fragile and and the moment there's an opportunity it's going to get reversed i i meant sustainability in that in that way something that we could we, we have enough agreement on that we could say no actually this is to to the best of our knowledge right now this is the better way to be or this yep. is the better way to present or engage or whatever it is. So I'm going to mirror back what I'm hearing just so I can check for my own my own clarity, because I think it's we have folks in this redefining stage, as I understand it, be maybe a little more dualistic in their thinking. They think mm-hmm. they have the answer. This is what we need to do. This is immediately what needs to happen. And there's solutions in front of them. And, and at times there can be an impatience around that. The transforming action logic is going to see some of, like you said, those polarities. There might be increased levels of dialectics in that they can hold two competing competing thoughts and and hold them and and really in that action logic be more concerned with 
what's the best long-term solution to make it more sustainable, to really help solidify the change versus something that might be decided, which actually makes things worse or Mm -hmm. something that might be decided that actually has consequences we haven't thought through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a need to help the folks in this redefining space. Uh, How do we provide them with opportunities to help see that complexity so that again, their own mental complexity is increased and they start identifying solutions that might be more sustainable. Have I yeah. captured it? Yeah. Please say yes. That's, that's pretty good. That's very good. That's very good. I, I think, so first of all, we do actually need to educate folks in different stages to to speak a little bit the language of redefining, you know, like the power analysis, that's how you like, if you don't get that, then there is no conversation with redefining. If you want to engage with the social justice mo- movement at this moment, you need to have the language. And so, so, and actually those of us in transforming also sometimes need to pick that up because we skipped that part, you know, I mean, it yes. wasn't an area of interest or whatever. So I think that is necessary. And it can't stop there. And especially, you know, as we are then talking to folks who are at, at redefining, it needs to move to this kind of, yeah, how do you deal with complexity? And, and I think some of that actually doesn't happen in kind of classic training spaces as much as it happens on projects and, yes, on, you yes. know, bringing folks into trying to create, co-create solutions. What else do we need to, before we move into and invite Amiel into the conversation, what else do we need to know about your paper that you'd like to underscore so that listeners have kind of that foundation before we bring in Amiel? I think the only other thing that is important to add is actually to say there's a critique of the developmental literature and the the kind of adult development ways of thinking, which would say that it is elitist, that it, 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 you know, it is focused on high up people in organizations who already have a lot of power and can get, get you know, get to go on retreats and develop their minds and, and their ways of thinking. I've taken that very seriously because I, I think it is a kind of a paradox in, in my work. And, and I've definitely seen developmental work used in that kind of way to essentially give more power to people who already have power. Yes. Um, and at the same time, I think there's something in developmental theory that does the opposite. The kind of examples that happen, it's like, like you come into a group and you do a developmental analysis and you see where different people are at. And it often happens that people with less positional power are actually more developed because of their life experience. And of course, people who find themselves marginalized actually often also grow from that. You know, if you're the only black person in your organization, you see the organization with new eyes. You see the complexity of what's going on in a way that you don't if you're part of the mainstream. So I do think developmental theory is a tool. And and I think there is this like really important choice about how we use it. Uh, And of course, that's also a developmental question. How do you use it depends on where you're at. I don't want to dismiss it on the basis of of being elitist and anti-equity, I don't find that that is true. Um, I think if you use it responsibly, it actually has the possibility of illuminating some of what social justice activists would love to illuminate, which is they're different and more complex ways of thinking on the margins. And giving some power to that actually is going to help all of us. So Mm. I think that may be a a bit of a nuance, but that feels pretty important to me as a person who's working in this intersection. You said something there that was really, I I think, important. It's a tool, 
right? Mm-hmm. And and like any tool, tools can be abused, mm-hmm. uh, misused, and it's a tool. And so I think being acknowledging some of the potential downsides of the tool while also acknowledging some of how the tool could serve, I think it's I think it's critical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way that I use this tool is is sometimes just using it to make sense of the situation I'm in. Like, mm-hmm. are, are these people just being difficult? Are they just being bad? Or is there something like maybe they're elsewhere developmentally? You know, like I can have much more patience for that when I see it with that lens. It's, it is like working with my, you know, relating to my younger siblings as opposed to somebody who's being intentionally difficult or yes. digging their heels in or something like that. Yes. We're going to bring Amial into the conversation, but I want to read something because uh, he he had he read your paper and and there was a reaction to the paper. And this is one thing I just absolutely love about academia is that there's this dialogue. It's not always a dialogue like this, but it's a dialogue sometimes just on paper. So I'm excited to have the dialogue in part, you know, on on phronesis today. But I love the spirit. I could not be more delighted that my little mini faces paper has been met with such thoughtful engagement and anticipation of its publication um, and that you wholeheartedly appreciated his response. Right. I mean, I think that's just a great spirit in in this. Uh, we are in dialogue to try and better make sense of some of these concepts in service to hopefully making the world a better place. Mm. So Amiel. You have been quietly listening to our dialogue. What would you like to elevate and what would you like to bring into the conversation for us and listeners to consider? Well, quietly is probably one of the better ways to listen, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes. Well, yeah, so, since I've talked, you know, since you shared how you came to write this, this is really about your paper. I just wanted to share how I'm even in this conversation, which is, while your paper was in its draft form, a mutual friend of ours sent it to me and thought, it, given my interest, it would be something I would uh, find enticing. And it, I just was like, wow. And I wrote you an email afterwards just saying how much I appreciated it. You know, one of the reasons is that I think it was the first time I'd ever seen this framework of action logics, developmental stages applied to this topic. And it really, it's a bit of a barren landscape when you're developmental, if you don't have all those things. And so what I had seen was a lot of people in my world, either fully accepting redefining or attacking it mercilessly. Did you say more about that, sir? Being subject to the action logic, which all the things that Aftab described, both the gifts and the limitations of that action logic, but really not realizing, oh, I'm... I'm criticizing everything with certainty, but simply doing it, right? Not being aware of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a, a whole group of people that are very, very critical of redefining for a variety of reasons, either because they come from an achiever or, or prior framework. And it's like, what the heck is this? This is yeah. strange or bizarre or threatening yeah. or, or are like, hey, I'm, I've grown beyond that. That's you know enough of this critique. And what, what, what folks, and I found myself in these conversations was, was spending all of our mind share just saying, either being in redefining or saying, this is so harmful, it would go so much better if redefining wasn't running it, which is ludicrous because it wouldn't exist otherwise, right? 
<laughs> how that was written, you know. And what the paper did was say, let's, you know, let's look at many faces, as the title is. Let's look at the full thing. And I was like, wow, this really expands. And, and just instead of just spending all of our time talking about one, let's look at let's look at all of these, you know. And then essentially I, I heard Aftab was submitting it to this journal. It's five months past. I wrote a letter, I wrote an email to the editor of the journal who I know, and I said, Hey, did you ever publish that? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, we're going to publish it and it's running in a couple of weeks. And I said, is there time to write? I really would love, like to write something about this. And so I just crammed it in at the last second, which <laughs> made it way too long and, you know, and didn't give Aftab any time to respond. She was going like an, a vacation with your family, right? <laughs> so it was just like a bizarre, I mean, a lot of it was appreciated, but there's part of it that was sort of, a, I was called supplement, but it was some critiques. It was just like a last second thing, which I really don't like doing, but I was so excited about it. I really wanted to be part of the the conversation. Talk about some of the points that you bring up. The, to, again, I mean, I think what's fun about this is that it's it's a dialogue. And so what are some pieces that you're entering into the dialogue? Well, I, yeah, I want to say that, but also ask a question to Aftab too about that, which is... I wrote in my piece that one of the great virtues of the paper is the explanatory power. You know, as Aptab said, it helps make sense of situations. And I wondered, there was this great story that you open the article with about sort of a tension between two people. And I wondered if you'd just be willing to briefly share that, because I think it it tells a good story. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the opening story is uh, the story of a graduate student who is organizing some kind of workshop on Jedi topics, so an anti-Black racism workshop probably, or what happens is that this graduate student invites their whole faculty, including the head of the department, to come to the event, and everybody is confirmed to come. And in the last minute, the head of the department says, actually, I, I, you know, I have a lot of work, like the budgets are due, and like I have to do some of this administrative work, I'm not going to come to the to the session. And so the graduate student is like, I was counting on you to be there. It's really important. We never learn enough about this topic. It's important we learn in, in community. And the, the head of the department very quickly goes to, well, I already know this content. I, you know, I had a black student, I had a black friend growing up. I don't really need this education. But they miss the part that's like the head of the department being in the room is actually quite important. That is systems thinking. That's thinking not about just individually, what do you know, but what is your impact in the room and the impact of your absence? And so they, they're they kind of like, I, I talk about them as like ships passing each other in the night. They they don't meet. And it, but it, and and the story from the graduate student who's probably in the redefining stage is like, this person doesn't care. They're racist. They, you know, they, they don't think this is important. But what really is happening possibly also is like they're developmentally in different stages. You know, the the kind of thinking about the impact on the group is not something that's top of mind for the head of the department. They're probably in the expert or achiever stage, which is which is kind of below. And so it's a, it's a situation of the more junior person having a higher level of thinking in a way, but they're they're missing each other in the night because of that difference. Yeah, I mean, what I what I really appreciate about that story is that if you either were in one of those two people, and at some point you could understand what you've just said, or any of us listening, it really is a compassionate understanding of the situation, rather than just this person is bad or racist or man, man, or whatever it is, 
And then there also might be the judgments that the boss might have had of the other person. It's like, wait, there's some differences here. And appreciating and staying in a place. I think one of you wrote about this. Let me know if I'm off base here. But there's this a curiosity in that difference versus a natural place for many of us to go is judgment. But that curiosity and that difference can be an important habit of mind, it would seem. Yeah, I think that's definitely a key point here. But right now I'm thinking about one of the projects of redefining is calling out white privilege, right? I think that's one of the the more controversial, you know, when, when Emiel, you're talking about the folks who just critique the social justice movement and where it's at, some of it is that. It's like that concept is so rigid. And so, yes, there's white privilege and there's also all kinds of lack of privilege and there and any like you can read every situation with that lens. You know, it's like just because you you have this hammer, not, not everything becomes a nail. Like so what this invites us to do is, yeah, curiosity exactly about the person who is, you know, maybe going around with that hammer. Uh, and also ideally from them, the ability to see other tools in the toolbox or mm-hmm. or be able to listen to even the story of white folks who do and don't have privilege and like how do you hold white privilege? you know like ha- having a conversation about that in some of the redefining circles i'm adjacent to it's a taboo conversation to even say what is the experience of white people like they've taken up enough room like we, we don't we don't want to give them any more room from my perspective it's like if we don't have some curiosity about that we are not going to move past the stuck place that that we are in so mm. yes, I think it's very much inviting and, and like creating a little bit of a mental model for a, what is essentially conflict between different portions of our society right now to be able to have some understanding of where others are at so it could be less stuck. Amiel? I agree. And, um, you know, one of the things that that story reminded me of, you know, in my own experience and this just gets back to this place of being really compassionate with ourselves is um, when I was in my late twenties, I was doing this project in the city of Detroit and meeting with pastors and it was all focused on uh, black entrepreneurship as we called it, or minority entrepreneurship, banks and community organizations. And there's a lot of different interests and I found it incredibly stressful to handle this all these different interests. I enjoyed my conversation with each person, but then what am I going to do with all these people? And interestingly, I would go back to my apartment at night. And if you'd looked at my apartment at the time, I had all of these goals and exhortations and declarations. I had just come out of an MBA program. So I was like (laughs) achiever, achiever, achiever. And I really was quite harsh on myself for not succeeding in that endeavor. And there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't successful, some of them me, some of them outside of me. But reading this article, OpDub helped me appreciate, yeah, hey, I, you know, I was really very achiever-like. You wouldn't have expected me to be able to manage all of those interests and, and differences. So there's patience with others, but I also wonder whether there might be some sense of like forgiveness with ourselves when we haven't been up to this. And I just wondered, OpDub, if you had any comments about that 
forgiveness for ourselves and our our past selves and how how we used to be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I experienced this. I, I mean, the, the thing that we haven't said is I actually wrote my article in the first person. Like the whole thing is written in the first person voice. I am all the action logics. I talk about, uh, you know, many of my own uh, stances, experiences from from all the action logics, including opportunists, which is kind of like quite problematic from where I'm standing now. I do think this is part of development is to become familiar with and have some compassion for our previous selves you know, mm. to be and almost to be like be able to um smile at it a little bit you know like it's, it's a and some of it is absurd it's like i can't believe that i used to think that way but it is at that moment that was my world you know that was that was what i was exposed to that was where i was at and there's actually nothing bad about it per se it's just that i'm somewhere else now so so yeah i I think it is actually very lovely as a tool for self-reflection and and almost like mapping our own journey of how are we learning these things and and the more we do that the easier it is to be compassionate for others who are at different stages i think yeah, I have a, a question that just came up a moment ago, which is um, I was reminded of something you wrote in your paper at the beginning, maybe in your acknowledgments, that you were thanking some writers for giving you the courage to write this. And I was just curious, what is the situation around this that called for courage? Basically, it's like I'm a little bit afraid of uh, redefining and the redefining voices around me, which are dominating again like that's what's dominating the conversation around social justice i think what happens is if you even suggest and of course emil you do this much more strongly in your paper if you even suggest that the categorizing that happens in redefining we need to move past that or that you know like a more developed way of being a more mature way of being is unseeing that or maybe moving past that is the better phrase or integrating it in a way to the folks who are at redefining and are seeing like living that reality of everything is in categories and there's this rigidity i think that doesn't sound any different from the achievers and others saying well like race doesn't matter or like why are you making such a big deal about sexual orientation? Like we are all one, like everybody has the same blood. Like there is this confusion between, you know, it doesn't sound that different. It's coming from a very different place, you know, like the kind of let's move past and integrate actually is quite different from actually these differences don't exist. But to the mind of the redefining, those sound very much the same. Part of the fear in writing something like this is like, they're going to hate me. You know, there's going to be a back. And of course, I'm trying to be a productive person. That's dangerous. So I think the folks that I name in the paper, Adrian Marie Brown, Kai Chang Tom, you know, there, there are a few folks within the social justice movement who've really come to this place of critiquing it in this way, some more sharply, some more gently, but trying to grow like you can't grow something without critiquing it and when something that has a lot of power gets critiqued and and especially if that is you or it's like a a group that you identify with and I very much identify like I come from the movement and I'm I'm a person of color I'm queer I'm a woman like it's it's like it's my people so that's the fear and I and I I think I mean I I feel good about and, and I haven't actually got really brutal backlash from that community thankfully 
maybe they're not reading. <laughs> I'm not sure. But, <laughs> but I, think, I, I think somehow there's maybe enough nuance in the way that we're talking about it that it can be hopefully more helpful than, uh, you know, rage inducing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's a difference, a pretty clear difference between us. Although at times in my life, I've been very immersed in communities with the redefining action logic. I'm not in that environment all the time now. And since I do a lot of work with companies, although I did notice last year when I, with a couple of colleagues, created a, a course that's in this space, sort of reckoning, you know, America's racial reckoning, mm-hmm. that I started to hear some sharp barbs from some people like, well, who do you think you are mm-hmm. do in this space? Including from another, you know, another nominally white guy. So I say, like, I've done my work. What have you done? Mm-hmm. Mm. And I felt kind of angry about that, but I, I sort of understood it. So it's there is this sense of like, if you've been, if you and I have friends who are much closer to it, and they have felt the the pain of that much more than me. And so when I hear the the concerns and the complaints, it's like, yeah, you have more risk. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm entering this space, uh, you know, there's more, there's a little more risk, I guess you could say. So I feel some of that sensitivity too, as well. There can be a sense of, for me, paralysis at times. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what to say. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to sound insensitive. I don't want to ask the wrong question. So at times, some of those minds that I see out in the audience are a little paralyzed. They don't know how to enter. And, and, and they've seen a couple people enter and boy, that, that didn't go well. So now they stay quiet. And then we miss out on some of those opportunities to stay in that place of, of curiosity and, and trying to understand, you know, going back to this basic Stephen Covey, seek first to understand and just appreciate other people's lived experiences. It's, it's hard. It's complex. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, I, I tend to think, for example, that uh, these conversations happen better in small groups. You know, almost any time I'm running sessions, it's like going back to the intimacy of we are sitting with another human because the the conversation has become quite polarized. And yet there is this, there's like a judgmental tone to it. And there's like a kind of a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong. And so that works for the people who are in it, but it, it makes a pretty high barrier. And I, I don't think that's the intention. This is another way in which I think the the ethics of justice and the ethics of this movement in this moment actually do lend themselves to opening, but we, are, we need to take more advantage of it. So, you know, in my context, uh, city of Vancouver, we have 10,000 employees, more than a third of them are operational workers. So they're the people who are picking up the garbage and cleaning the streets and arborists and, and you know, f- folks at the rec centers. And they don't have this language. And this is partially an education, a, a socioeconomic class kind of thing. They actually are some of the more diverse parts of our employee body, but they don't have this language. And so when I'm talking with the folks who are more kind of centrally in the social justice mindset, I'm able to say, well, like, we need to talk with operational workers because they have the least power, you know, and like almost kind of that's a logic that's available to redefining. It's like a reading of power that speaks to them. And the minute we bring those folks into the room, we cannot have this kind of you you can only say these words and, you know, you're going to get thrown out if you say the wrong. We have to have a more 
open, compassionate, forgiving way into the conversation. So yeah, it, I, I, I feel like I spend a lot of my time kind of engineering. It is, it is a kind of similar to what Jennifer Garvey Berger is saying. It's like, which action logic am I speaking with? What do they understand? And how can I use those constructs to bring in pieces that would help grow? Yes. Where they're and not shut different. down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because yeah. again, if if done incorrectly, or if as soon as people start feeling defensive or triggered, I mean, regardless of where someone sits in the conversation, then that can shut down versus give life to dialogue. Biases are confirmed and, you know, it just, it, it ends up really, really challenging progress. Mm-hmm. You know, this raises a related question for me, which is, are the term, what are the terms for people engaging in the conversations? And in some places or many places, everyone is required to take a training and in other places it's you know opt in come to the conversation if you would like to and this distinction is very familiar to me here but also just generally in the leadership development space right where it's like everyone needs to come to this workshop or training or if you're interested come and over the years i've often been negotiating and battling my clients to say you're not helping yourself if you require everyone to be here most of the time there are exceptions and i just was curious what your experience up top has been around this yeah there's actually some literature on this specifically with respect to equity diversity and inclusion training and essentially what they're finding is that mandatory training tends to backfire I think for the, for the same dynamics that you're pointing to, like people having to be here in the conversation with these terms makes them more resentful. I think, I mean, you know, it, it's a very live conversation in my workplace. And do we go mandatory or do we continue to be in this more sort of like offering things? I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, my, my kind of general sense is that whenever you force people to do something, you create resistance to it. And, and I would much rather make the revolution irresistible then shove it down people's throats you know and and it's i mandatory actually... <laughs> the revolution is mandatory yes the revolution, <laughs> mandatory revolution. yeah i mean i i think there is we are in a moment and i mean this is this we are we are you know two years past the summer of 2022 murder of george floyd a few years after the me too movement but i think we are still in this expanded moment of people realizing I need to pick some of this up to be in better relationship with people close to me. And maybe that's my children, you know, or is my coworker. I mean, there there is no escaping this. And I, I think there is much more of a of an attraction there, more more of a carrot there than a stick. And I and I don't think we have yet in most of our spaces enough compelling trainings that people would voluntarily walk into. And that, that that's definitely been my focus of what we create more of uh, as opposed to a mandatory, everybody must, must have this. But I do find that socializing some of the language that we talk about is helpful. Like people knowing race is a social construct, it's a pretty complex concept, but people getting that is helpful in then having a conversation or like systems are racist versus individuals are racist. Like 
that's useful for people if we can we can we can socialize it in in, in accessible ways. Mm-hmm. But it, but that doesn't necessarily happen in the training. I think that happens in the way that we do day to day communication in a in a space or, or you know when something is in the media. I, I almost always will comment on it in an all staff email because that's a much better learning opportunity than a difficult conversation where like you don't know what to say and you're trying to perform and be a good employee and the terminology. <laughs> Does that make right. sense? I mean, yeah, this, again, it's just this underlining this point about making the play, use, use the word enticing, um, making the space as enticing as possible. And not everyone's coming for the revolution. Really. Most people, if you really, if we're including everyone, most people are not there for a revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We all yeah. have different interests. I liked what you said about, being able to relate to people that you care about. And as part of that, I would say, or simply relate to people that you have to work with yes, yeah. every day, whether you really care about them or not. Yeah. It's, life can be, work can be better and less stressful when we have some of these skills. And I, just, I feel like that sense of self-interest and enlightened self-interest is really an important part of expanding the space. So I really, I really like that you emphasize that very much. Mm-hmm. You know, you've spoken about it as, as, as being around power dynamics and sort of white privilege. And I'm just curious in your experience, how much are those terms intrinsic to that action logic, whether it's today or hundred years ago, or hundred years from now, or how much of that is that action logic interpreting a certain philosophy of the world, so to speak. That's very much about this particular period of time. Hmm. I'm not sure I know exactly the answer to that question. I do I do feel that redefining by definition almost is loves new terms and making up new phrases. And then of course we have social media. So you can kind of like really make a, a new term or a new hashtag or whatever catch on. So I think a term like white fragility, it, it has become its own cultural phenomenon at this point. Is it something that has been around for a while and is connected with other existing philosophies? So hard to say. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I, I know for sure. I feel like I would be making it up if I try to answer. It is a packaging that is for this time and, and is maybe looking to be more new than it actually is, which is why the question is difficult to answer. Amiel, how do you uh, think about that question even? Uh, one, also, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> two, sometimes I have a sense that connecting this particular agi- action logic within us, the redefining action logic, with some of these particular perspectives actually makes that action logic appeal less appealing and actually diminishes from what it offers. And in some developmental models, there are you know healthy and unhealthy expressions of, of an action logic or mm-hmm. stage. And also sometimes we might talk about an earlier action logic, quote unquote, hijacking the ideas created at a later action logic. The classic example being 19-year-old kids taking critical race theory or critical theory and applying it through a not so mature action logic. In some cases, I mean, expert opportunist, yeah, really. Yes, for sure. 
And then what, what happens is we have all these news stories around, particularly from certain parts of the media, showing all these horror stories. And it isn't necessarily the redefining action lobby. It's, yes, yeah. it's these actually kids that are much more immature, kind of spouting and trying to make sense of these ideas from an earlier place. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, I, I think that's that's how the kind of social justice army is created in this moment. It's not that all the folks are at a redefining action, which is actually quite advanced. It is attractive and it's easy to jump on the bandwagon for the much earlier action logics, which is really, it makes it pretty difficult. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Wow. There was this other point that, that you make in your paper and you spoke about, which is how if I'm marginalized in a certain way, there's an opportunity for me to see these complexities. I'm almost forced to by circumstance. And you describe how there are a lot of folks that are that fit that category. And I guess, I don't know if this is a challenging question or not, but I am curious to what extent maybe you're seeing a cross-section of people who are marginalized who just happen to be more developed. And actually that marginalized folks in general are developmentally the same as everyone else. So I'm just curious if you had a perspective on that. Yeah. So again, I think the answer truly is that I don't know, although there is some research out of South Africa, which is trying to look at exactly this question. The interesting question for me is, how do you make marginalization more often a container for development, if you will? You know, like, how do you, because what we know is that some people are marginalized and feminists call this epistemic advantage. They, they Because of their position in the system, they become more able to see more of it and they, they become more kind of sophisticated in their relation to it. Other people are marginalized and they go into trauma and they withdraw and they become more rigid in their in their thing like both of those things happen and and the question is like how do you make more of the first and less of the second happen i i tend to think that the key to this is trauma and the ability to work through trauma like if i if i had a magic wand i would give everyone therapists like that really i i feel like it's like if, if you can figure out a way to work your way through what, what are really can be quite negative feelings of marginalization. There's a path to development there. I'm not sure we have yet a handle on what is the percentage and how does it compare with the non-marginalized right. or what does that even mean? Like, well, who is the non-marginalized? But but I think the interesting question is how do we use marginalization, if you will, as a means for development? Now, did you say each person gets therapists, like multiple therapists? Because I find it hard enough just working with one. <laughs> yeah, they'll they'll be each be at a different developmental level for you. Um, each of I them. Know, I asked you two questions and end with I don't. You know, you said I don't know, but I do want to ask you one that maybe Scott was going to ask you anyways. But what are some of the things that you hope people get from this conversation and also from your article? Just to summarize, great mm -hmm. question. Yeah, I think we've we've touched on most of them. I mean, like this piece about having a lens through which we could look at the dynamics around us with more curiosity and a little bit more patience and compassion. I mean, I think that's really, that's a huge thing. The other thing that's just standing up out to me as we are talking, Amiel, is, is like, because of the moment that we're in, I think people with different identities and life path, not only action logics, but, but, but different identities, different lived experiences, 
they have different roles to play. There is a way in which people of color get more grace in conversations about race. You know, like there, there are things that I can say in a group of, in a mixed race group that you probably can't say. So to me, what, how do we find the role that we each need to play? And so I, I just like really appreciate the way, Amia, that you've come into this conversation of amplifying the pieces about my work that, that you see are important, like just really being so supportive in it. And, and I do feel like this would be a, my social justice friends would be happy for me to say this, but it's a kind of like a great use of your privilege, you know, and, and to to make opportunity for, for ways of thinking that are coming from the margins in a way to find more play and, and more room. So I'm hoping that people will, because the conversations are scary around Jedi, I'm hoping that more people will step in and find roles that make sense for them that may not look like how somebody else is taking up a role, but is actually necessary and, and supportive. I, I would much rather people come, you know, clumsily and, and play a small role or right than withdraw from this conversation. So I'm hoping that we've encouraged that through that this last little bit of conversation here. And thank you so much, Scott, for making the space for it. I think it's Obviously, I think it's really important. So hopefully a, a few more people will think it's important too. There's a few words that we've used a few different times in the over the course of this part of the conversation, which is that curiosity. There's a level of humility that that I'm entering the space with some humility that I'm I'm here to learn and to better understand. And then there's also some bravery. In many ways, regardless of where you sit in the yeah. system as you mentioned, more central, even critiquing or trying to challenge us to think differently takes some level of bravery. Does that capture the sense? I think that's true. I think there's different risks, no, no matter where you sit. And yeah, it takes bravery to be part of it for sure. And it takes a kind of like an honesty about what that risk is. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I'm probably not going to lose my job even if a bunch of people hate my paper. Yeah. So I should do it anyway because the, the benefit is probably worth it. You know, like, and, and my, my own feelings of marginalization could, could make me too scared to do that. But I should do it anyway. You know, like, what's mm -hmm. the worst thing that can happen? <laughs> not so bad after all. Okay, so as we wind down our conversation together today, uh, Amiel, do you have a final statement or kind of thought as we as we conclude the conversation? I loved being part of this with the two of you. And as I said at the beginning, I'm piggybacking on this piece of writing that Aftab, this very, very original contribution that she wrote. And so I'm just grateful that, I don't know, I was raised to stick my nose into things and speak up and also that. <laughs> Aftab, welcome the dialogue, you know, that's, uh, so that's, that's what I want. I, I just want to say, and I, I, and I share the hope, I really do share the hope that conversations like this can, let's just say, free up more people who care, who want to make a positive difference to speak up, to be engaged in whatever way works uh, for you. Hmm. And that. You know, if, if we've helped 10 people do that, that would make this, that would make it be very gratifying. Yeah. Well, and I, I just want to echo that because it, you've put a, a language to some of what I've felt in different rooms at times. 
And I can, I can see it through a lens now that I, I hadn't seen it before. Literally people's minds are in different places and their lived experiences are in different places. And it helps me make sense of what's happening in that space. And, and I, I just really truly appreciate the work as well. As we close out for today, I'd love to have each one of you take a moment to just say, what's something that's caught your attention recently? Something you've read or streamed or listened to? It could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It might have nothing to do with what we've just discussed. But is there something that stands out for each of you? I feel like there's so many things that stand out to me on a daily basis. I'm just like, how how do I possibly choose? But (laughs) I I did recently read a book that I then had all actually all my staff have now also read it's called 4,000 weeks and the idea is that in a lifetime we have on average 4,000 weeks that's it like this this is one of 4,000 that we are living right now how do you want to design your life and you're not going to do everything (laughs) and you're going to disappoint yourself and others because you're going to try not to do some of the things I mean I think I mean, it relates in a way to to working in the Jedi space because there's just unlimited things to do and it's never done. And it, we know, you know, the arc of the moral history, it's it's very long and we're never going to be done. So, so I think there's something very wise and kind of important for self-preservation and for relating to the world in this curious, compassionate way that we've been talking about that, you know, it, it couples well with this idea of being realistic about the time we have. So... 4,000 weeks. Um, I think the subtitle is Time Management for Mortals. And then like, <laughs> oh, I will put it in the show notes for sure. Amiel? I'm just thinking about how many weeks I've accrued. You got left? <laughs> I think I'm at uh, 2,700 or something so far. So that's great. That That's an optimistic view. <laughs> To answer your question, for me, there actually is one big thing that has come to my attention recently, which is a book called Ministry for the Future, Ministry for the Future by a science fiction writer named Kim Stanley Robinson, whose books I've read for quite some time. And his book is, you might describe it as a near-term, he's science fiction, so it's fiction, but a near-term plausible future of humanity actually turning the tide on climate change. And it has a variety of protagonists. It has a lot of economic and financial stuff. It's got terrorism. It's got a very small love story. And But what I, what I really loved about it is unlike a lot that I take in around climate change, it's a narrative format over 20, 30 years. So I could actually imagine this happening. And it's so, it's, you know, touched me, I think, more than any book in the last 20 years and you know, inspired me to double down, so to speak, on my work in that area. So uh, ministry for the future, worth some of your 4,000 weeks. Like you're going to spend yeah. at least a couple. So it would so take, it would you've take sold part, it well. part of a week, part of a week, <laughs> spend part of a week on it. And then well, part of a week talking about it. <laughs> so, so it's, it's, it, it, it provides almost a path forward that seems reasonable. Is that accurate? It seems plausible. plausible. And, I mean, okay. and I'll just briefly, he imagines all of the central banks in the world agreeing to create a so-called carbon coin that 
if, say, an oil company decided to keep their oil in the ground, they would receive a certain number of coins for that. They'd get paid to keep their oil in the ground. And there'd be carbon quantitative easing. You know, we have all this money flowing in from the central banks, but it'd be for the purpose of something <laughs> other than saving banks' rear ends. It would be yeah. for the purpose of saving our, our, saving our, our own way of life. Yeah. <laughs> so it's very imaginative and yet it could happen. And yeah. so I found it real exciting. Well, to the two of you, I'm just very thankful for the conversation and thanks so much for the work that the two of you do. I uh, appreciate you being here today and uh, take care. Be well. Thank you Thank so much. You. When people ask me about the podcast and they say, you know, are you enjoying the process? I, I oftentimes will say, yes, I love it. It's kicking my butt every week. Every week I'm in conversations with people from somewhere in the world who are doing incredible things, who have expertise that I simply don't have. And this is a great example of that. In this conversation, I am in the deep end and there's an important lesson there. There's an important lesson there. I have two individuals, two experts here with really important perspectives for me to understand and I know I have more work to do. I know I need to better understand this topic, but I'm not there yet. And the practical wisdom for me is, look, a couple times a month, a couple times a week, are you in conversations where you don't necessarily understand everything that's being said? You are in the deep end. You are jumping in and, as Joe Hart would say, taking command. That's next week taking command and putting yourself out there and engaging and using that superpower of curiosity. So that's the practical wisdom for me. It was an incredible conversation. It was an important conversation. As I reflect on the conversation, what I appreciate was the fact that I was actively learning in real time. And I think the three of us were learning in real time. And for me, that's motivating. For me, that's energizing. And I hope it is for you too. As always, thanks so much for checking in, everyone. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.